Let's turn now to the book of Romans chapter 15 as we continue our way through this glorious epistle. Romans chapter 15, we're nearing the end. We're into the final section of this letter from our brother, the Apostle Paul. Some final concluding matters that he brings us to. And we will again once more stand together in honor of the Word of God. And, and we, we stand when we read the Word of God. It's not out of empty ritual. It is to, to posture ourselves, to remind ourselves that it is the authority of God's Word that dictates everything that we do in this church. And, and our reading of the Word, the Old Testament and the New Testament, our praying of the Word, all of these things, some would, would accuse us of not being very seeker-sensitive to the non-believers who might come into our service, and we would say, that's exactly right. We believe that the Word of God is filled with supernatural power. We believe that it is the fully inerrant, breathed out by God, very Word of God. And so we are putting our money where our mouth is in our reading of Scripture, in our praying of Scripture. So let's stand together. Once more, as we read, picking up where we left off last week, that has us in verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 15 of the book of Romans. Hear now the word of the Lord. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. And Lord, it is because we love you and we worship you that we love your word. We recognize what a good gift this is to us. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit working through your Word, you would accomplish that which only you can do to cause dead hearts to live and blinded eyes to see, to transform your people by your Spirit's power through your Word's proclamation more and more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for myself as I proclaim your Word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I pray for each one of us that we would have receptive hearts to receive your word as your spirit applies it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, a lot of people do have opinions about what the purpose of the church is. What is the primary mission of the church? What is it that should be the church's priority? What's the nature of true ministry in the church? Paul's going to help us answer some of these questions this morning as he reflects on the nature of his own ministry. What is the mission of the church? If you asked that question 75 years ago, most evangelicals, evangelical used to mean Bible-believing Christians. There are some who are trying to shift what that means now. You would get a similar answer from pretty much all of them. They would tell you this, the mission of the church is the Great Commission. 
As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you asked 75 years ago, what's the mission of the church? That's the answer you're going to get back from most professing Christians. If you ask that question today, you will likely get very different answers from that. Things like the social gospel, things like liberal theology, which have been around for many years and have only grown in their strength, have have replaced the good news of the true gospel with a gospel of social justice, a, a gospel of societal restructuring. The, these destructive ideologies have come even into the church and taken away the concept of hell. They have removed the need for personal salvation. They've confused the mission of the church. These unbiblical ideologies have muddied the water when it comes to what is the mission of the church. Is it evangelism or is it social justice? Is it the kingdom of God or is it some sort of earthly political liberation? Is the mission of the church the transformation of social structures? What, What does it mean to build the kingdom? What does it mean to continue on in Jesus's mission? Well, well, today, as we look at this passage, Paul will make it clear to us what he thinks about the answer to that question. He'll tell us the nature of his ministry and then the method of his ministry, what it is that enabled him, what it is that empowered him, what it is that caused him to be effective and fruitful. But we start with this boasting from Paul. And and just imagine, if you will, what must have been going on in the mind of that donkey that the Lord Jesus rode upon as he entered into the city of Jerusalem? And as this donkey strolls down Main Street in Jerusalem and the crowds begin to part before him, palm branches and robes are being thrown at his feet. As each new group of people sees him coming, the smiles light up their faces. Perhaps tears of joy are rolling down their cheeks. Songs of praise are breaking out. Shouts of Hosanna are breaking out. Such fanfare, such celebration. The donkey might have thought, I deserve this. I'm amazing. I'm incredible. I'm surely the greatest donkey that has ever lived. Well, it's a ridiculous thought because we know nothing could be further from the truth. He's just a donkey, and any donkey will do. It didn't need to be him. could have been some other donkey. It didn't matter. He's nothing special. These praises don't belong to him. It's for the one he carries, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you this. That's a lot what being a pastor is like. That's a lot what it's like to be in ministry. You, you, you work hard. You study. Blood, sweat, and tears go into every sermon that you preach. You plead over it in prayer that it would be helpful, that it would be effective, But it's not your message, it's Christ's message. Any praise that comes as the result of the message, any fruit that comes from the result of the message, 
The glory for that belongs to Christ alone, all of it. None of it belongs to the messenger. It is his message. The power is his. The glory belongs to him alone. John MacArthur commenting on this passage that we're looking at this morning says, the people God uses to accomplish his will are his instruments, and no Christian should take personal credit for what God does through him. No brush takes credit for the masterpiece it was used to paint. No violin takes credit for the beautiful music the musician makes with it. And so with this in mind, the concept of how crazy it would be for us to take credit, for us to to boast... Look at what Paul says in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So what on earth is Paul doing? Does that sound wrong to us? Like Paul's now all of a sudden, at the end of this letter, making it all about him. This is the same Paul who writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He writes later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The St. Paul who wrote that now says, In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. We need to know, first of all, there is no contradiction here between these statements. Paul does not believe that he is the source of his success in ministry. God is. And so... He's bold to boast in his accomplishments, not because he's seeking glory for himself, but so that he can magnify what it is that God has done. To make nothing of his accomplishments, to minimize them, would be to deny that God had worked. It would actually be to rob God of his glory if Paul put on some sort of false humility and would say, I haven't really done that much. I haven't made much of a difference. I would rob God of his glory. And so Paul insists on emphasizing the apostolic nature of his ministries. He has continued and does so in numerous of his letters to to emphasize and insist upon his apostolic credentials. He's not doing so to pull rank. He's not doing so to make much of himself. But as he writes to the Roman church, he wants them to understand who it is that's writing to them, why it is that he is writing. He wants them to to see that they should actually partner with him in ministry. That the Lord has appointed him and they should get involved. Paul is not some self-appointed traveling evangelist who goes around imposing himself on churches. He just shows up and presumes to tell them what to do. He just shows up and asks them for money. No, he's an apostle. Capital A. Apostle of God. Called. Commissioned sent by God. It's clear from the context as Paul writes this that Paul does not believe he is the source of his success. He believes that all of the success has come from God. He says in verse 15 that God granted him this ministry as a gift. He says, because of the grace given to me. 
He sees himself as the chief of sinners, not the greatest and most accomplished of sinners, the chief of sinners. He doesn't see himself as the most worthy. He sees himself as the most unworthy. And so when Paul boasts here, when Paul says, I'm proud of what God has accomplished through me, he's highlighting God's grace. He's not highlighting his own merit, his own goodness, his own wisdom. In verse 17, he speaks of being in Christ Jesus. This is a central theme. This concept of being in Christ is a central theme in Paul's theology. Over 60 times, Paul speaks of being in Christ. We receive our life because we are united with Christ in his life. We are able to overcome sin because we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We are justified because we are united to Christ in his righteousness. We're adopted because of his sonship. We are glorified in his glorification. All of our praying is done in Christ and is therefore acceptable to God. Our, Our core identity as Christians is that we are one with Christ. We have union with Christ. We are in Christ. And in him we are one with one another. And so any ministry that we do, we do in Christ. In other words, it's, it's enabled by the Spirit of Christ. It is directed by the commands of Christ. It is done for the glory of Christ. It, it is Christ's righteousness that covers over our inadequacies and our shortcomings and our failures so that our work for him is acceptable to God. Paul says in in verse 18 then, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. But Paul's not, not speaking of his own accomplishments. I've done these things. He's not boasting in his formidable intellect. He's not bragging about how great the tents he makes as a tent maker are, even. He wants to boast only in what Christ has done through him. And so he's only talking about the things that he has done because he knows that really it's the things that Christ has done through him. He says his mission is to bring the Gentiles to obedience here in verse 18. Notice though that he doesn't say to bring them to faith. It doesn't say, my mission is to bring the Gentiles to faith. No, my mission is to bring the Gentiles to obedience. A person isn't saved merely in order to believe. We are, yes, saved by faith alone. Grace alone, in faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes and amen. But our our salvation is not merely in order that we would believe. We are saved unto obedience. We are not saved by obedience. We must be perfectly clear on that. We have to get the order right. But we are saved to obedience. We're saved to obedience because God saves us to be a spotless bride. God saves us to be a holy people, zealous for good works. And so believing is the start of the Christian life, not the end of it. And and Paul says it's Christ who does this. It's Christ who saves. It is Christ who makes us obedient. 
But, but the fact that that's true, and Paul has, has emphasized that in many different ways, come at it from many different angles in the book of Romans, that it is the work of Christ. This is not a joint venture where he does part of the saving and we do part of the saving. It is Christ alone who has reached down into that cesspool of filth we were in. It cemented into our condemnation and sin in Adam. It is Christ who has reached down and broken us free and brought us to himself. It is Christ who, by his spirit, transforms us into his image. But the fact that God does it and not us does not mean that we should be passive. It does not mean that we should resign ourselves to some kind of fatalism that says, God does it all. I don't need to do anything. I can just coast. I can just sit back. No, no an understanding of God's sovereignty does the very opposite of that. If we truly understand what it means for God to be sovereign in saving us and making a people for himself, it will lead us to do quite the opposite of just folding our hands and sitting back. If, if we're confident that saves, God saves people according to his own sovereign grace, that it's God who makes us holy, then this will take a great burden off of our shoulders. We, we don't have to feel the weight of being the one who has to produce the results. It sets us free to simply obey God and to leave the results to him. A belief in God being the one who brings about the results sets us free to do what he's called us to do with confidence. Not, not just without putting the pressure on ourselves, I gotta say everything perfect or, or this person won't believe. We gotta put on a slick production here at the church or else people won't, they, they won't believe. No, we're freed from that, but also we're, we're free to serve him with confidence, knowing that despite, despite our shortcomings, Despite the fact that we forget to turn the speakers on and the service has already started, like this morning, despite all of our shortcomings and our weaknesses, our frailty, our sin, the list could go on and on, our lack of intellect, despite all of that, he's the one who will bless. He's the one who will produce fruitfulness. And this is Paul's attitude towards ministry. It is essential that it be our attitude towards ministry. Paul then tells us what his method is. Look as he goes on in verse 18. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Okay, this is the ministry. It's the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And Paul says how he did this ministry, he describes it with three things, all of which are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the words that Paul spoke were not his own. They were the words given by the Spirit of God. The power to save was not his power. It was the power of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. The deeds that Paul did, the great works of faith, the signs and wonders that accompanied his preaching, they weren't generated in any way by Paul himself. They were brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here is, of course, describing his apostolic ministry. And some want to use this apostolic ministry of Paul as a formula, as a model for today's church. They look at Paul's ministry and they go, if our church doesn't look just like that, we're missing out. We must be quenching the Spirit in some way. 
They, they even claim that we can have this same sort of apostolic ministry. In fact, you can go online and you just pay a small fee and fill a form out and you will be a bona fide apostle. I don't recommend it, by the way. No, the truth is we, we will not have the same apostolic ministry Paul had. Paul is a capital A apostle. The, the apostles were given as a gift to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 tells us they were given in order to lay the foundation of the church. They had a unique ministry with signs and wonders. Signs and wonders being their badges of authenticity that set them apart. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that signs and wonders are the marks of a true apostle, he calls them. The marks of a true apostle are these song, signs and wonders. And so many wrongly overemphasize these things. They seek out these things as central in the activity of the local church. This is what validates a faithful ministry. I, I saw a video just last night, the portion of a video of some, some people from, from the, the kind of churches I used to be involved with someone whose ministry I was very familiar with, and his entire validation of what was going on in these churches was, I mean, just look at all the things that's happening. That must, it must be from God, or these things wouldn't be happening. I wonder if we would do the same thing with the signs and wonders that accompany kundalini Hinduism. Well, just look at that. It must be from God. I'll tell you this. It's not from God. So, so, so what is it that marks, authenticates faithful ministry today? It is not to try to replicate the apostolic sign gifts. It is instead our association with the word of God. We are no longer laying the foundation of the apostles. They have laid that foundation. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.20, we are, they have laid the foundation and we are now building on the foundation that they have laid. And so the litmus test now is not the sign gifts, it is the faithful teaching of true and right doctrine. That is how we separate the good from the bad. Why? Why is that now how we separate the good? Well, because the living word of God is sufficient for, for all life and godliness. And to prepare the people of God for every good work. The word of God has, has been given to us from the hands of these apostles, these, these set-apart ones who laid the foundation. There's another recent, more recent error that has crept into the church where the word deed here that Paul uses is reinterpreted through our modern notions of social justice and social action. And so true ministry is all about helping the poor. True ministry is all about elevating the oppressed. More recently, a radical ideology called critical race theory has made its way even to what was once conservative churches, Bible-believing churches and organizations. It's brought with it a corruption of the gospel, which depends, in this view, on works and not on grace. A constant working. A constant doing the work. Never actually achieving forgiveness. Never actually achieving righteousness. 
It seeks to undermine everything Paul has taught us here in the last couple chapters of the book of Romans as Paul has, has again and again called us to a unity of the faith. Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. People from every tongue and nation and tribe worshiping, being brought together as one new man. The dividing wall of hostility between them broken. What Paul calls elsewhere the mystery of the gospel. It, it completely undermines that. Both of these wrong emphasis that, that people draw out of this passage cause us to de-emphasize the gospel. Paul says this ministry is a ministry of the gospel. But the gospel is de-emphasized. Now, don't misunderstand me. We, we want, in fact, we need the Spirit's power. Apart from the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit of God, all of our efforts are in vain. All of our efforts are fruitless. We also need to be concerned for the poor and the oppressed. If we have no social concern at all, it is because our hearts have grown cold. These things matter. But when our priority gets shifted onto the wrong things, the mission of the church becomes obscured. It is no longer centrally focused on taking the gospel of the kingdom to the very ends of the earth. It is about meeting people's earthly needs. It's about fighting oppression. Or it's an emphasis on miracles and charismatic experiences. When that becomes the focus, it challenges the primacy of the preaching of the gospel. We don't care so much about doctrine we just care about these things. And if these things are happening, that's all the proof that we need that we are front and center of everybody who's doing it right. But it's the gospel message. It's the gospel message that Paul says in, in chapter 1, verse 16 of this letter is the supernatural power of God for salvation. Paul, Paul here, as he describes his ministry, is not trying to set up for us three equally ultimate things. Here are these three things. They're all equal in their importance. They're all, we, should, we should have an equal emphasis on them. We've got preaching. We've got social action. We've got miracles. That is not what Paul is doing. That is a misreading of the text. And it has led, that very misreading of the text has led to a de-emphasis on our primary task, which is to take the gospel of the kingdom of God to all nations. The Great Commission is the mission of the church. Je Jesus is the author of the church's mission. He is the Lord of the church. It's chief shepherd. It's senior pastor. His words are clear. The fact that these are his last words recorded for us in his earthly ministry, the fact that they are recorded five times for us in the New Testament speaks volumes of their significance. And so as, as churches read the book of Acts and they go, we want to be a New Testament church, we must read the book of Acts through the lens of the Great Commission. The Great Commission defines the book of Acts for us. The book begins with it, and the whole rest of the book is an outworking of that commission. Good deeds are certainly not neglected in the book of Acts, but they are in no way equal in weight and importance with evangelism. 
We don't see social transformation and cultural renewal as the focal point and agenda of the New Testament church. We see the proclamation of the gospel. We see missionary efforts. We see church planting. We see strategic, sacrificial effort in the spread of the gospel across the world. In, in Acts chapter 26, we see Paul standing before King Agrippa. And he quotes Jesus' direct commission to him, to Agrippa. He says in verse 16, this is what Jesus said to him, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things which you have seen, uh, have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then he turns to King Agrippa, verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those who were in Damascus and then Jerusalem and then throughout the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's the mission. That's the call. Are you here today as an unbeliever? As someone who has not submitted to the Lordship of Christ? If you were to ask yourself, what is the church here to do for me? Here's the answer. The church doesn't exist to entertain your kids. It doesn't exist to provide programs for them. We are not here as another social service whose primary concern is helping you have food to eat and find a job, offering you financial assistance. The church is first and foremost the herald of a message. It's the one message you must hear. The message of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message begins with our sinfulness. It begins with our rebellion. It is a message of judgment. It is a message of righteous condemnation from God. That is the paycheck that you have earned for yourself. This is the message that a God of love has made a way. That, that you... You who deserve to be punished can instead be rescued. That you can be rescued, that you can be saved, that you can be bought out of that condemnation by the righteous Son of God taking the punishment you deserve in your place. The Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again. It is the message that tells you if you will come to Him in humble faith, that his righteousness will be your righteousness. That the wrath that was poured out on him will have been poured out in your place. It will have been your wrath. You need to hear this message. You need to hear this gospel message. You are being called right now to leave your sin behind. To renounce it. To come in humble, grateful submission to the one who made you. To the one who even now calls you to himself. So come to him. Come to him. No life. No joy. 
This is why the church exists, is to proclaim this message to you and to the ends of the earth. The church, believers, we need to hear this too. The message Paul preached is the message that has been preserved for us in Scripture. We must be faithful in believing it. We must be faithful in not changing it. Most importantly, we must be faithful in proclaiming it for others to hear. This is the priority of the church. We do other things. We help people financially. We are concerned with the poor and the oppressed. We do all kinds of things. But this is the priority of the church. This is why we exist right here. The preaching of the gospel. The fulfillment of the Great Commission. We exist to equip the saints of God to make disciples of all nations. To Jesus then defines what it means to make disciples of all nations. It is not have them respond to an altar call and fill out a commitment card. Baptize them. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. That is why we exist. To make disciples of all nations. And this can only be done, we see in verse 19, by the power of the Spirit of God. It is the only way. There are no more apostles today. That that foundation has been laid. We are not to be seeking after signs and wonders the, the signs and wonders that followed Paul, the signs and wonders that followed the apostles, as if somehow we expect them to be commonplace in our churches today. But, this is a big but, we can and we should expect the power of the Spirit to attend the faithful preaching of the Word of God. We believe this. It's one of the reasons that we don't send the kids out of the room during this time together when the gospel is preached, when the word of God is proclaimed. Is most of it flying over their head? Yes. Are they going to make a little bit of noises that might be distracting for us? Yes. Get over it. Something supernatural is happening in this room. The spirit of God attends the faithful preaching of his word. We believe that. We are staking everything on that. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and He wields it with irresistible power. We can and we should expect the power of the Spirit to be at work when His Word is preached, and we can and we should expect the power of the Spirit to use our deeds of love to adorn the gospel, to impress the truth of God on the minds of the unbeliever. We believe this. We can expect God to answer prayer. We can even expect extraordinary works of providence where God does the miraculous. Why do we pray for people to be healed? Because God heals people. We believe this. That's why we pray. We shouldn't, though, deceive ourselves into some sort of false expectation, presuming that God will make our ministries look like the Apostle Paul's apostolic, signs and wonders-filled ministry. God has not promised us that. In fact, the Scripture reveals the opposite. We shouldn't expect it. The, the word sign here is key to our understanding. Signs are not ordinary miracles. 
They, they are acts of God's power that verify God's message. Remember in our, in our study, if you've been a part of this church for a longer time, our study of the gospel of John. That's a word that, that, that John uses over and over in that gospel. The word signs. Sometimes he speaks of the miraculous. Other times he speaks of the miracles of Jesus as, as signs. Certain miracles were signs. Signs that highlight the identity of who Jesus is. Jesus proclaimed that he is the light of the world, and then he performed a sign opening the eyes of a blind man. Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and then he performed a sign raising Lazarus from the dead. The sign authenticated the claim. In the same way, the apostles were giving the role of laying the foundation of the church. They were writing scripture. God was speaking through them. They were the ones preaching the initial gospel that the church would be built on. And so as we see with Old Testament prophets and the signs that accompany their writing of Scripture, as we see in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, and as we see now with the apostles, these signs from God accompanied their message to authenticate that this is the very word of God. Friends, we don't write scripture. We, we don't speak infallibly the message from God, which is binding on all peoples and all generations and must be preserved and obeyed until the return of Christ. We've heard the apostle Paul say things like that, but you've never heard me stand in the pulpit and say, what I'm going to tell you now, let me just step away from the scripture for a moment. What I'm going to tell you now, you must obey. And you must teach it to your children, and all generations must obey. No, if I do that, you just got to fire me immediately and get a new pastor. That is not our calling. We have not been set apart by God as apostles in the way that the Apostle Paul was or the other apostles. Therefore, we don't have the kind of signs following us that we see with the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. And we shouldn't be sad about that. We have something so much better. We have something so much better than that. We have got the Word of God. A fully formed, a complete revelation from God. Sitting on your lap, sitting next to you. You've got a dozen of them in your house. It's on our phone. A complete, lacking nothing. Every word of it perfect. Not one word missing. Inerrant word of God. Here's what this means, friends. Anytime we want to, anytime we want, we can hear the voice of God. Think about how staggering that is. I remember growing up in charismatic circles and people calling out, wanting a word from the Lord. Oh, that he would give us a word. All the while, we have a perfect word from God and we can hear his voice any time we want, anywhere we want. There's nothing more glorious than that. It's mind-blowing. So how should the nature of the Apostle Paul's ministry inform 
and affect our ministry. First of all, his message is our message. This gospel that, that, that Paul preached is the gospel that we preach. We've been made heralds of this same gospel. We are ambassadors of this same kingdom. There is no one who has better news than we've got. It doesn't matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter how slick we are. We have the best news, the most essential news in the whole world. I remember this story is told of Charles Spurgeon's, I believe it was his grandfather, had to fill in and preach in Spurgeon's pulpit. And he said, my grandson may preach the gospel better than I do, but he does not have a better gospel than I've got. Nobody has a better message to preach than we have. His message is our message. Secondly, Paul accomplished all things by the power of God. We too can do great things by that same spirit of God. We must be expectant. We must be obedient, trusting him to bring about the fruit. That is our calling. Our calling is faithfulness. It is not to manufacture fruit. We must not then falter. We must not make ourselves the focused. In other words, we can't dwell on our own weaknesses and insecurities. Oh, we can't do it like they do it. I can't say it like he says it. No, our call is to be faithful. And friends, because God does the work by his spirit, faithfulness is enough. That's our part, to be faithful. The work belongs to God. God is the one who blesses and empowers our work. It's Christ who builds his church. And his, message, his mission will not fail. It will not fail as he works it out through us. What a glorious privilege. What a great joy. May we focus on the right things. May we be committed to the Word of God, to the proclamation of the gospel. May we not keep it locked up here in this building and build some ivory tower that we expect everyone else to, that we turn our noses up at everyone else from. May we take this gospel to the streets, trusting God by his spirit to attend the proclamation of his word in power. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for our brother, the Apostle Paul. Lord, what an what a inspiring example he has set. What a challenging example he has set. What a testimony of a faithful life. We thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to give us your word. And through your word, we do hear the voice of our God. Lord, we don't want to be guilty of worshiping the pages of Scripture. Worship belongs to you and to you alone. But Lord, we are grateful for this gift, and we do approach it with reverence and with joy, and we submit ourselves before your inerrant word. Pray, God, that you would make us faithful in our day. God, cause us to, to not be those who, who give lip service to being committed to the sufficiency of Scripture, 
to the power of your spirit, but have no evidence in our lives that we actually believe those things are true. Cause us to to be faithful in all areas. And we do pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst. We do pray, Lord, that you would move in miraculous ways, even as we come to you in prayer asking for the miraculous when one among us is sick or struggling. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our faith to grow or that we would be truly a spirit-filled people. Thank you, Lord, that you have given to us your spirit who dwells within us, our sure deposit of eternity with you, the one who empowers and enables us for fruitful ministry, the one who reminds us that we are in Christ, that none can take us from his hand. We pray, God, that, that Lord, you would cause us as a church to be a city set on a hill, a shining light for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.